HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Hey, welcome to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture. I'm Wythe Marshall, and as always, we have... Hi, I'm Alyssa Metric. And our guest today is the amazing... Jonas Gunther. <laughs> from the company... We are the new farmers. Ah, great. You have farmers in the title. It's very clear why you're here. Uh, it'll become very clear to our <laughs> listeners uh, shortly. Thank you so much for making time. It's great to see you again. Um, and it's been great over the past few years to see your company develop from like initial idea to, you know, a thing with products um, that are really, uh, really great. So we're going to talk today about um, creating a company in urban agriculture in New York City um, and various, various other themes, but, uh, you know, I'm really just excited more than even more than that to just hear and talk as always about, uh, today's crop, which is algae. Uh, so, uh, you know, a little, little spoiler for the rest of the conversation. Um, Jonas, do you want to introduce yourself? Just tell us a little about your background and, and maybe just what is, we are the new farmers. And before we, we sort of ask more questions. Yeah, sure. Sure thing. It's, it's always great to, to come back to you guys and talk to you. It's like, cause I literally know you from the beginning of my journey and it's like, um, it's such a, such a long process from the very first days to, to where we are today. And, um, today we are, um, an indoor farming company located in Brooklyn, um, in Sunset Park to be precise. And we're dedicated to the cultivation of microalgae. Microalgae are tiny, single-celled plants. Technically, they're phytoplankton, which just means tiny things that make their own energy. 
Each microalga is invisible to the naked eye, but seen together, they can look like beautiful blue-green foams or bright green or red or orange slimes. In fact, they can be all kinds of colors. Not all microalgae are edible, but some of them, like spirulina, are superfoods. Others provide natural sources of dyes and other useful materials. The thing that makes them super interesting for us um, as, as humans is that they are insanely nutritious. Um, they are very packed with vitamins, but nutrients, but um, with protein uh, dependent on the species that can be very rich in fatty acids. Um, and um, they're insanely, it can turn carbon um, into the building blocks of life. Um, whether that is vitamins and minerals, fatty acids, and so on. And they're very efficient in that because many of those organisms are extremely old and um, don't need a lot of resources to do so. Um, so, yeah, we've been operating for four and a half years. We're dedicated to one specific type of microalgae today, which is called spirulina, which a lot of uh, your listeners probably know from the supplement aisle at, at Whole Foods or maybe from, from Amazon. Um, and it's a, a blue-green algae that is extremely rich in plant-based protein and offers a widespread um, you know, from all kinds of minerals, vitamins, um, and is often considered an extremely nutrient-dense food, sometimes also called superfood. And uh, what makes us unique and why we decided to cultivate um, this type of algae here, here in New York City um, is because typically this type of algae is something that is only grown overseas um, the majority actually of, of all uh, microalgae cultivation is happening in, in southeast asia and china um, like it's all imported to the united states um, and because that is so far away uh, people tend to dehydrate it into a powder that can have a rather unpleasant flavor and is a little bitter and a little fishy and, and people really don't enjoy it uh, but in any way it's because it's healthy at least supposedly um, and uh, we thought there needs to be a better way. So we th rethought the entire process really from the ground up, um, redeveloped entire methods to cultivate this type of spirulina um, or this type of algae um, in, a, in, in an urban center to offer it in a, in a different shape or form, which is fresh and unprocessed, um, following the belief that I probably think lots of your listeners will, will believe in too, that fresh foods are inherently better than dehydrated powders and, and processed foods. Um, yeah, that, that's what we do. Um, and, um, that, that's kind of the quick intro to, we are the new farmers. Um, uh, Jonas, I have a quick question. Um, so what, did you really like spirulina beforehand? Like, were you like a spirulina addict where you're like, I, I need to grow this fresh or, or was it kind of more of like, you saw that there was a need for spirulina and especially fresh spirulina since it, it isn't usually grown here. Um, uh, or, or was it kind of both? Um, yeah, my journey actually started from a completely different angle. Like before I came to New York, when I started this project, I wasn't even familiar with, with spirulina. I wasn't familiar with microalgae overall. Um, I was interested in the question of, of how do we want to grow food in the future when we are, uh, desperately in need of ways of doing so with lower carbon impact. Uh, like, how do we bring down the carbon emissions in our food system? Um, and um, I looked into different ways of cultivation and, and, and indoor farming and vertical farming. And one of the things that that stood out to me was um, that, like, if a friend of mine was working in microalgae and was working in microalgae for biofuels, which which you may be familiar with. Like, the, the ten years ago, there was a huge rush into that, um, and he introduced me to microalgae for the first time and I looked into it and I immediately 
got super super curious i was like what is this thing it like turns carbon into protein it needs no arable land it needs almost no fresh water it is extremely healthy like extremely extremely healthy like packs um and yet no one's eating it like why is no one consuming this and um that's when I when I learned about powder powdered spirulina and and the reasons why we have powdered spirulina and um, thought about a way of like we need to find a better way of bringing this to people. Like sometimes we internally refer to the the challenge as simplifying algae. Like today it can be very complicated, can be very uh, difficult to use for people and off putting for people. So we are on a mission to to serve this in a way that is a lot more appealing and that can actually fit much easier into everyone's lifestyle. So no, I'm not a health nut. No, like a, maybe I'm a bit of a health nut, but I was not consuming spirulina on a on a day to day basis before. Um, but I got picked by the, by, by this idea of cultivating a food that can potentially be carbon neutral. Well, that's a great segue uh, actually into two questions that I, that I really wanted to ask, cause I know you have a lot to say on this. Um, and, and one is very simple, which is that idea of making it more appealing. So if you're taking a crop, you know, in, a, in ag terms that many people aren't familiar with, they're not thinking about growing single cell plants. Um, but in terms of cuisine, they're also probably not thinking about eating it. And as you said, maybe have encountered it if they're real health nuts as like a powder, a green fishy powder that you put it in stuff. But this is a different product. So maybe could you describe their product and how you cook with it? And then the second thing, which I, so it's, you know, there, there are two questions here, but I know, you know, some of the science now, a lot of the science now behind why it is um, good for you, how it is good for you, how it is better than, than the dried stuff. Um, and And it seems like there's a lot to say about the science in general, whether it's about climate or nutrition. So that's something maybe we can come back to you, but I'm curious about how you've learned that, where it's going, what you'd still like to learn more about, but maybe to start. Yeah. Just to orient us, like, what does it look like? What does it taste like? Smell like all of that stuff. I, I feel like I kind of know, but I want to hear how you sort of pitch, you know, raw uh, spirulina. And and yeah. eventually I, I would like to know how you grow it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I tend to I tend to forget that when uh, you know when you work with the product on a day to day basis that it's not obvious at all how how it looks like. So um, our product um, is fresh, and what it means is it comes as a paste and that looks very similar to hummus um, in its consistency. It's kind of a mousse, if you will. Um, the only difference to hummus is it's dark green. Um, the, the algae that we cultivate is blue-green algae. So imagine like literally a fur-green color. Like um, It's like very, really dark green, very mesmerizing actually. Um, and um, that is the starting point. And the interesting thing about the product is that it has a rather neutral flavor. I like to compare it often to like mineral water. Like you can taste some of the minerals inside. Uh, but it's not a particularly strong flavor at the moment. You mix it into something, you probably won't notice the flavor. What you will notice, however, is the uh, is the texture. It has a very rich and creamy texture. Um, if you eat it by itself, like literally just a spoonful, um, people often compare it to to raw egg yolk that kind of like coats the inside of your mouth because it's so rich and creamy. If you blend it into things, so if you add it to things, it acts as an emulsifier. It gives some extra creaminess to, to products. Uh, in smoothies, kind of like a frozen banana or some yogurt, for example. Um, and all of that, though, without any fat. Like in our products, there's absolutely no fat in the product. So it's all just a protein water, um, a protein and water that, that creates this kind of mouthfeel. 
and um, in terms of what you can do with it. Um, well, that that's pretty much up to uh, the individual. Like um, the, the the interesting thing is that it's very very versatile. Um, our customers often start with the same use cases that you have for the dried powder. So um, the juices, the smoothies, I can make spirulina bowls or yogurt bowls with it. Uh, but that's when it already starts to become more creative and people actually start using it in more ways than, than just dip the powder because it tastes better and has a better texture and it's much more interesting. So if we use it as a spread, I can recommend it on some toast, just a little bit of salt or, or, or lemon on it. Um, you can make all kinds of beverages with it. Like we had people creating um, a, a, um, a spirulina maca or a, um, a latte, a matcha latte with spirulina. Um, you can incorporate it in salad dressings and pestos and, and dips of all sorts. You can even bake with it if you want to. Um, some people would say you lose some of the nutritional value, like with all vegetables. Uh, but... Um, you know, it, it, it's really up to you and um, the flexibility is, is, is really high when it comes to the use case. Yeah, I think I had spirulina once um, when I was traveling in Puerto Rico and I was in like a kind of like a health conscious hotel or something. And we had spirulina in our pancakes. So we had green pancakes. <laughs> it was great. Well, we actually had a, a cocktail bar working with uh, with our spirulina as well, but that, that's a different story. Um, no, but like the pancakes is a, is a good example of how uh, a lot of parents use our spirulina as well to you know smuggle some some healthy stuff into the kids' food and like okay, now it's suddenly green and this is so cool and the kids eat it and they don't even taste it and and are happy uh, and the parents are happy because it gives an extra nutrients to your kids. And I don't want to be too jokey, but um, I was just thinking the next uh, St. Patty's Day parade could be way more healthier. <laughs> or like go, go, going back to white here, yeah, we should we should uh, figure out how we can uh, tint the beer with some spirulina. Yes, and some green beer going, right? there's great oh microbreweries in the city, so you should definitely partner <laughs> with somebody who wants to do a Patty's Day healthy whatever. Um, I think that'd be fun. So, uh, this is an open request for proposal to all the microbreweries <laughs> out there. <laughs> exactly. Well, so so back to that question, because I, I love that you said you got into this because of climate and carbon issues, you know, and you found a crop. So it wasn't like you had spirulina on the mind. It was about some other aspect that wasn't even really culinary. And it led you to grow a specific crop. Um, and now you have essentially a packaged goods company. Like you're selling a, a perishable good, but it's it's neatly packaged. It's very beautiful little jars of this very pleasant foam, uh, this very, very deep blue-green foam. Um, what is some of the science that's been compelling to you? What are just, I don't know if you have any quick stats, anything you want to highlight that's like kind of blown your mind or things that really compelled you to get involved? Um, was there like a moment of discovery when you were like, ah, spirulina i'm gonna get a tattoo you know like i i don't know was there was there that kind of story behind it or um i think it was just a, a multitude of different things um like the, the first thing that i i think completely blew my mind is when i realized that um the organism itself has about twice as much protein as a chicken breast um it's extremely protein dense um and um I think that combined with the additional minerals uh, that, are, that are present from iron, the potassium, the, the copper, and, and so on, uh, it made it just like this super intriguing um, organism. Um, then you can dive deeper into into the history and like realize that this organism is like 3.6 billion years old. Like 
billion, not million. That is like primordial kind of old, uh, primordial soup. And um, and it's one of the first photosynthetic or active organisms. Like um, we found filaments of uh, cyanobacteria, which is the scientific term for the type of algae that we grow. Um, and they date back all the way uh, until the time. And um, what we what we know today is that they play a very a very important role in um, a, in an event during which a another organism basically ate up this type of spirulina organism, which used photosynthesis for the first time and the other organism was a predator who was just like eating other types of things and the predator was like hey that's actually a really useful skill you uh you can turn sunlight into energy you can hunt for other things i just incorporate you and um that is the beginning of all plant life this merger between an outer cell and this uh, first initial uh, cyanobacteria um, led to the development of all kinds of plants of all kinds of um, of algae later on and um, you can still see under the microscope the very same form of, uh, of, of the very, very same structure that leads back to what we see today under the microscope in, in microalgae. And that long history is just super cool to me. And then I, I could go on forever, but like <laughs> there's so many little things that, that sparked my, my interest. And I think a lot of folks that are into into the world of fungi um, kind of have the same fascination and they start get interested in one thing and then they learn about the incredible bandwidth that exists within fungi and and get totally absorbed in it and that's the same for me for for microalgae there are thousands if not millions of strains of microalgae out there uh, freshwater saltwater and we've barely discovered a fraction of them all and not even talking about which ones we think about eating which is just a very very limited number and uh, the enormous potential that lies within these types of microorganisms that we haven't even explored um just you know speaks to my uh, curiosity and uh, i'm i'm like wow I, I can't wait to see what we are going to discover in the next couple of decades when it comes to microalgae um that sounds amazing. And, and, and that's great. The kind of birth of plants in general, like the whole history of that. Um, I have a two part question. Sorry. We're so excited asking so many questions. <laughs> um, but, um, one is, um, is there a culture that, you know, that uses spirulina, like spirulina is used within that, that, um, cultures, food waste and that type of thing. And then also this is kind of a different question, but how do you actually farm spirulina? Yeah. So um, there are many cultures, uh, several cultures around the world that, that use spirulina. Um, it's typically associated with cultures that uh, are close to places where spirulina naturally occurs. Um, the two that are the most prominent ones are um, in Africa, um, the Kanembo people uh, cultivate spirulina in, uh, in one of the volcanic basins around Lake Chad uh, in Africa. Um, it's a it's a very historically or traditionally important uh, crop for these people. Um, it's a very interesting story actually that um, so this this type of algae grows in this volcanic lake and only women are allowed to get in touch with, the, with this type of algae. So um, when, when it's time to harvest, the young women go, go into the lake and take um, 
baskets to siphon off the spirulina from the surface of the of the lake, um, and the older women are there to protect the lake from the men, uh, which are not supposed to enter the lake because otherwise it will turn barren. Um, and so it has become this very traditional um, uh, food for them that has helped them during uh, many times of famine and um, is part of uh, one of the core sauces or rather. I don't know if sauce or spice mix is the right word. It's considered dihe. Um, it's, it's a mix with other other ingredients that's used with vegetables and, and meats. And um, that's actually also where the Western world uh, discovered uh, spirulina, really, or rediscovered, rather, um, when a French mycologist for the first time saw that in, in, in markets and was curious about it. Um, and then the other um, the other part of the world is Mexico um, in, in modern day uh, Mexico City. Um, the like we know today that the Aztecs used to cultivate spirulina as well. So um, uh, around uh, Lake Texcoco, which is right where modern day uh, modern, uh, Mexico City is located, um, when the Spanish arrived, um, they actually. Um, put down an entire report on uh, how, how the locals were using spirulina and they were comparing it to degree to, to their local cheese or to their, to their own cheese, uh, but uh, couldn't really get warm with the, with the flavor. So uh, it wasn't really something that was translated back to, to Spain. Um, however, what we know is that the Aztecs used to use it for long periods of time and that um, the, their couriers that would travel between their capital, uh, Tenochtitlan and I'm sorry if I'm completely butchering this this, uh, this pronunciation here, um, and then uh, the other cities in, in the empire, and um, they would give this to the couriers as some form of ancient energy drink, energy food that they, they would take along. So there's been a long, long history in that, and even today, uh, spirulina is considered one of the historical foods of of Mexico. So. Cultivation of spirulina uh, works in two different ways. Um, the tr more traditional way. Um, and that, by that I mean the more traditional commercial way um, is done in raceway ponds. So they are large oval ponds that are open to the surface. They have a central divider where water is circulated um, in, in and around. And, um, um, and the algae grows inside the water. Um, the, the algae needs the exact same things that the, the plant needs. The NPK fertilizers, a bunch of minerals, um, then sunlight, um, it needs uh, carbon, uh, typically in the form of CO2 or sodium bicarbonate. And um, then uh, it you know, does the photosynthesis and grows and multiplies over time. It's very similar to what most people know either from their pool or from their little pond that they have in the backyard. Um, so imagine that kind of algae bloom. It's a, it's a, it starts with a light green color and then over time the organism doubles and gets denser and denser. Now, um, today, there's been a lot, lot of research into what is referred to as photobioreactors, which is just a fancy word for um, a closed cultivation device for, for algae. Like they can come in all forms and shapes. Uh, but the, 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 the hallmark here is that, it, uh, that everything happens in a much more controlled environment. You provide the lights, you provide the measure the water quality and the sensors inside because the Fascinating thing about this type of algae is they can grow really, really fast, um, explosively fast. So as long as you provide the right growing conditions, you can really um, harness a lot of efficiency out of this. And, and that's essentially what we do too. Um, we've, we're cultivating indoors. So we have uh, small tanks um, that are filled with the nutrient solution and, and the initial, initial inoculum of, of spirulina. 
um, the, the grow lights that that provide the light that the algae needs to grow, and um, then we provide uh, enough carbon um, in the water for for it to grow. And over the course of the next couple of days, you end up with a denser and denser culture. And all you need to do at that point is um, harvest it. And you do that by running it through a multitude of filters that catch the algae. And remember, it's a very, very tiny organism. So we're talking about uh, 25 micron or even smaller uh, types of filters. Um, but they catch the algae. And then you end up with, for the lack of a more culinary appealing term, uh, a sludge of algae, um, uh, which is still relatively high in water. And then uh, you have multiple ways of processing it downstream. If you want to have a powder, you use a spray drying process to, to remove the water and dehydrate the product. In our case, we just um, gently remove the, the excess water and then process it into a fresh product or into a frozen product, which we also have. Oh, that's great. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So it sounds a little industrial, which is kind of where I want to go with like how you see yourself in terms of launching an urban agriculture business and participating in urban agriculture. And I guess, you know, a follow-up would be like, can other... Can you grow this at home? Um, but I'm curious, there's sort of two pathways, like recommendations if someone wanted to get involved, but also, you know, really, how did you start a business? How did you get this um, kind of competency? Because it sounds like engineering is involved. It's it's maybe a little bit different than going out in a, in a garden and planting a seed in the same way, you know, hydroponics is different, right? So these are like different techniques that we're all, they're all happening in the city. Um, so maybe I'm, I'm curious how you got that knowledge and, and, you know, how it's going really. Well, Mostly through reading a lot of stuff online and um, relying on some of the existing um, spirulina farmers that exist around the world. Um, some of the leading spirulina farmers are like small scale farmers are in, in France. Um, there are a lot of manuals on how to grow spirulina out there. Um, and, you know, in the end, it's not so, so different to, to anyone who's growing something in their garden for the first time. You just try on a very small scale and you fail often uh, until you understand and, and understand how it works. Um, so I remember in my in my early days having tiny little bottles uh, with culture on my on my windowsill and like trying to get it going. And some of them worked and some didn't. And um, and when we when we moved out of uh, our lab at uh, at NYU and moved into our first commercial space, 
there were so many failed cultures and so many things that didn't work out and, and eventually we got it going to a system that is extremely reliant and and, and works really well um but uh, yeah it's it's uh, it's a big challenge in the industry like it's not like you can go um and study hydroponics uh rather you can go and study hydroponics and then then uh, be, become a, a farmer um there are academic trainings for in terms of algae out there there's obviously a lot of science behind that but not necessarily enough applied science like how do you actually get going with this fiolina farm because um yeah i don't even know why it's it's just not been an industry that's been in the focus for the last couple of decades um i have a quick question um is there any spirulina varieties that could actually be cultivated in salt water or it has to be fresh water so um spirulina is pretty much entirely or the types of spirulina that we cultivate is uh, cultivated in fresh water um in a very alkaline um solution um so there are lots of salts in the water it's just not considered salt water the sodium content is particularly high um but that's just one particular strain i, I should probably clarify that a little bit more just to get, give people understanding um, when, we, when we talk about microalgae, microalgae is just a very generic term that is um, as broad as saying plants. Like I should say algae equals plants. Like plants, there are trees, there are vegetables, there are uh, fruits. Like there are so many different other terms underneath. And so is, that's also true for, for algae. Um, they're red algae, they're green algae, they're brown algae, they're blue-green algae. And that's not even speaking to the size of the organism. Um, so the specific strain that we grow, um, compare that maybe to um, romaine lettuce as like one specific thing, that's violina that we grow, the two different um, uh, like species within that, um, and or at least the ones that are commercially sold. But there are hundreds of other strains um, that we know of, and some of them can grow in, in salt water um, and grow in different kinds of conditions, much like plants. Um, depending on what kind of uh, algae you grow, they all grow in other types or in different types of conditions. So what what has surprised you as you've undertaken this? You've got all this knowledge together. Um, what's it been like on the business side? So obviously you're very interested in the science and um, the technique. And you said you kind of learned looking at manuals and, and a lot of trial and error, do it yourself. Are there things you've learned in trying to, because that, that would all make sense for like a hobbyist. Um, but, you know, you've taken this to the scale of a business and you have other people involved and like employees, right? Like that's, that's a little different. So how, how has that process gone? And, and, um, I don't know, does that take away from the fun of growing? I mean, what, what is it like running an urban ag business? Well, it, it certainly changes things, right? Like, um, when, when I got started and when many people get started, they get started because they're passionate about food and they're passionate about all the cool things about it, like growing all these cool varieties, uh, like having fun in the garden and thinking about the, the great impact that they're going to have. And um, the, the reality is, though, when you decide to start a business, uh, very quickly you need to start talking in business terms as well and you need to consider all the business terms as well. Um, one of the things um, that I often uh, tell people like and I'm also mentoring uh, students at NYU when, when they get started and, you know, they're very idealistic and they have, they have great ideas and how their business can improve the world. 
But the first thing that you need to make sure is that you are financially sustainable. Like if you don't, if you're not financially sustainable, then all your other uh, impact uh, forms don't matter. So that that's your starting point. And that what that means in terms of our businesses, the first thing that you need to ensure is that whatever you grow, you actually have someone on the other side who wants to buy it. Not only consume it, but wants to actually pay for it to, to purchase it from you. This is a very sobering approach and a very like um uh, probably not as fun as thinking about all the cool things that you grow but in the end it's it's um it's at least as important as everything else if you you want to operate a business so all the cool things that we're talking about here right now the fascination around algae and and um, the possibility and the potential systemic impact they're worth nothing in the end uh, if we don't figure out how how we sell this to to our customers and what is the value that we provide them with our products. Um, and that was something that that we needed to learn in the beginning, and um, that is sometimes um, you know, hard to balance like your your idealistic approach and and what are the things that people are willing to pay for. For some reason, I keep on thinking of like spirulina would be really great. Um, for some reason in growing food, like let's say, um, has NASA kind of experimented with that? Um, because it's such high protein and you need, it sounds like you don't need a lot of space for it. Um, and that you could always, you could dry it as well. So I don't know, for some reason, I just think about like NASA using it and like, or, or folks using it when they're up in space, or I think about, um, what is that? The, the biodome if only they had spirulina (laughs) they could have taken out their co2 and could have eaten things more i don't know just thoughts weird thoughts well it's definitely it makes a good space food um (laughs) nasa has definitely done some research on 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 uh, spirulina um like we often talk about the the potential for it for like long distance space travel like if we want to go to mars and so on like in that kind of scenario, um, we're talking about like multi-year uh, transit, you cannot just like put everything in storage. You probably need to find a way to cultivate at least some food um, on the journey. Like even if it's like um, not possible to put all the nutrients into your storage, uh, people still want to have like fresh things, and like it's good for your mental health. It's good for like I think we, we don't even understand all the benefits that come from that yet and uh so uh, i think what i'm trying to say is spirulina is a very interesting crop for that band because it can be cultivated with almost no uh, like need of space uh, or like land in, in more terrestrial terms um, and it provides such a bandwidth of nutrients and vitamins in, in doing so um so um yeah nasa has done multiple papers on it and is always considering it so yeah, NASA, if you're looking for someone to go to Mars, here I am. I, I can I can help you. <laughs> yeah, this was this was actually a really big deal at NASA. I, I believe it was the 60s and 70s. They hired the great systems ecologist, the Odom brothers, uh, to work on uh, microalgae cultivation in space with the idea of completely recirculating waste and creating oxygen and creating food and just being able to maintain. Like Basically, the experimental question was, if you sent one dude up in a tin can, those are dudes at the time, um, how much algae would you need and how could you have redundancy built in to not screw it up? 
to keep that person alive indefinitely for just the, in the ways you cite. So like you wouldn't need to send up a bunch of candy bars, which eventually run out because you have an infinite supply of food because it grows and it also filters air. The problem was they could never get it to work experimentally. They tried with mice a bunch and different. They eventually tried um, something very different where it's like, let's just bring a whole lake, like a lot of organisms uh, together. But th that whole line of research was eventually defunded. And basically NASA figured, you know, long story short, it was cheaper to send people up with candy bars. And they were only ever going for short, shorter stints. Even the ISS now, you only get, you go up for a few weeks, a few months. Um, it's quite long and there's lots of problems with being in space. But absolutely, I think I think that whole era is ending as people put their eyes on Mars. Like sci-fi TV will tell you everyone's obsessed with going to Mars. There's like multiple shows about the first trip to Mars. And I mean, if you're going to go two years out at best, if everything goes right, yeah, you're definitely going to need to grow some food. So I think, you know, they're looking at hydro or aeroponics, I should say, and definitely algae. Uh, so it'd be really interesting if your company just by dint of like there are billionaires who want to go to Mars now, just, you know, got a big boost from like these experiments. Well, I mean, um, the other, I don't know. The other thing is if you go to Mars, you can never come back. Do they ever tell people that? Because of gravity, you can't come back. The gravity, especially if you spend any amount of time on Mars, the gravity is so different that if you came back to Earth, you'd probably be crushed by our gravity. So it's like, if you become a spirulina farmer, that's it. You're going to be a spirulina farmer. You will be the new farmers. <laughs> on Mars farming spirulina. So just putting that out there, Jonas. <laughs> Damn. Well, maybe I need to focus more on, on terrestrial problems then again. <laughs> yeah. There might be enough to do here, here on earth. Um, well, this is great. So what, what is next for, we are the new farmers. So maybe if you could tell us, I think uh, just so it's clear, you currently sell basically jars of fresh algae and also sort of um, pre-frozen cubes, right? Is that, that correct? Those are sort of the two different sizes of those. That is right. Yeah. Okay. And so what's next? Is there, is there something else in the horizon? Is the goal basically get more people to try this stuff and see the nutritional benefit? Um, any cool partnerships, anything you want to announce? I mean, <laughs> God, there, there's so much that's going on right now. Uh, I think, um, well, the two, the two most important things I think is that we, we are expanding. Like we, like we're still operating out of our very first tiny farm and um, we're building a, a new facility right now to, to really expand um, our production footprint and um, to really, you know, bring down pricing as well. That's just the nature of these things. And it, that's very exciting for us. So I'll be on the lookout when we soon be able to announce a little bit more formally uh, our, our new facilities um, and then secondly, um, you know us as, um, you know, a D2C brand, like go to a website, place an order, ship it straight to your doors. But we are increasingly also working with businesses um, all across the United States, actually. We've been um, signing on two shops and smoothie shops that offer our products and um, working with food manufacturers across the country. So that is an, that is an increasingly um, important, important channel for us. I think it just speaks to an overall observation that, that I'm that I'm uh, having at the moment. And that is, um, a couple of years ago when we started, no one really knew what we were doing, and and now we've reached a point where more and more people are really really interested in in microalgae. Like almost as like a first wave of a little boom that that, that we're seeing here right now, and people are 
getting it and like, oh my God, this is such a cool organism and they find ways to use it in like such cool ways in all kinds of beverages and in food. And um, that that's what makes me super exciting. And um, that's what, you know, I'm very excited to see what, what's going to come for us in the next couple of months as we as we now find new partners and, and continue to develop our business. Great. Well, that's that all sounds very exciting, and congrats on the announcements. You can't quite announce about you know new whatever it is, <laughs> uh, new expansions and and whatnot. And we'll have to have to have you back on. Um, you know, I I think uh, maybe Melissa, you can have the last word as a, as a sort of penultimate question. You know, I, I always tend to ask, and I know you're very smart and read lots of things, so I'm just very curious whether it has to do with Sterling or not. I'm sure it will, but you know, what, what is your vision for like urban agriculture in New York city and, and cities in general? Like what's, what's a good outcome? What should happen in the next few years? Uh, maybe not, you know, all the level of space travel, but you know, down here on earth, we have a lot of, a lot of issues. Um, what are some positive, positive news you want to highlight things you, you wish to support, you know, what should we focus on? Yeah, I, I think we're in a very, very exciting time here in, in New York city when it comes to urban agriculture right now. Like as, as we're recording this just a few, a few weeks ago, the uh, office of uh, urban agriculture has been finally um, you know, put into life. And I think that it's going to give uh, a lot of business and, and a lot of new developments and just some extra momentum. Um, I, I don't know. Like, I think there's, there's so much that, that is already happening and I think it's just not necessarily uh, on the public uh, radar of, of all the core community gardens are doing the community organizations that do amazing work to combat food deserts. So I'm, I'm more on the visionary side and I think like what could be like, uh, what, what, what could change to make this, um, this place even, even more amazing. And I think I had this, this thought the other day, I had a conversation with someone um, around kelp and about the experiments that people are doing around growing kelp in, in New York state. And, um and i was i was wondering we have like such an amazing restaurant scene here in in uh, in new york city so how can we integrate our urban farming community and our local crops and i'm not necessarily just saying things that are grown right here in the, in the city but really in in the, the whole ecosystem that that exists more into into the amazing um, restaurant world that we have. We have some of the most creative chefs in, in, in the entire country, probably in the entire world. Uh, we have an extremely, extremely curious audience here in New York where people are not shy to try out new things that might be considered a little weird or a little, a little out there. Um, so I, w- I wish it would be better or easier to integrate those two that, um, you know, the urban farmer that in, in, in Sunset Park grows a heritage Mexican herb, um, finds their Mexican chef somewhere in Manhattan that comes up with the most amazing application. The um, seafood restaurants in the city not being shy to try out uh, New York-grown sugar kelp and find the best new applications for, for kelp. And um, I, I think that is something this integration between these two industries, I'd love to see that a little more um, and be more ad- ad- adventurous around the things that, that we see on our plates. Yeah, I, I definitely, um, I could definitely see that. And um, just being the background that I used to be a gardener for a restaurant <laughs> in, 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 uh, in Bushwick at Roberta's. Um, and it's funny because I could see, um, I, I worked with chefs and, they were definitely 
very interested in all the strange, you know, things that I could grow and, and also just a small amount of things that I could grow. They'd be like, Ooh, we could just use that for a tasting, you know, menu or something like that. Um, I guess, um, one of the things that, that I see that could happen is just the price point of like, if you're growing food in an urban area, a lot of times the price point might be a little bit more just because the economics of growing food in an urban area. And, um, but it depends on what restaurant you're selling to, right? Like some restaurants would be okay with that price point where others may not be able to be okay with that price point. So I think that's, that's one issue that I just saw, but I think some of the um, chefs that I still worked with, depending on what, how accessible that ingredient is, they would be willing to pay a little bit more for it if it wasn't as, as, as accessible and if it was fresh. So yeah. going back to this idea of fresh spirulina, how, you know, that's an item that they can't get everywhere, you know? So. Exactly. I think, I think it has two components, right? Of course, the, the New York restaurant scene is also extremely competitive. I know that margins are very, very low and everyone just needs to have on the menu what, what sells. And um, so there's a lot of pressure on that. So I think what I'm, what I'm hoping for is to find a way to alleviate some of that pressure, like to, you know, stay in the visionary world here where like there's a program where restaurants get a a small grant to like find a new crop that is better for the environment and grown locally. Like, uh, and they find a way to put it on the menu for a short period of time and find a new use case. And if it works, then it can keep going. And if it doesn't, then they haven't lost anything. I think finding these kind of mechanisms to, you know, integrate more sustainably grown produce in, into menus and open up kind of the palette of things that we use. Um, if not in New York City, then, then where else where else would that happen? Yeah. And I, and I also love the movement of like eating invasive species. Um, oh, yeah. You know. Just put it out. And I know I'm very, I'm joking a lot, but, but I do love what you're doing there. But, um, but I'm like, you know, chefs, if you're listening, lantern flies, I don't know, heard they're bitter. <laughs> Maybe let me do something. <laughs> just, I don't know why I'm joking so much. Just, just, uh, just no, that's great. Lantern um, flies and, and children, right? That's what Jonathan Swift said. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> modest proposal. Uh, so yeah, this is all great. And I think um, one of the, the, I guess, really, you know, final, final questions, um, unless Melissa, you, you have more, is we should, we should uh, let you kind of shout out, where can people find you? What do you want people to do? Do you want them to go to your website? Do you, do you interact a lot on social media? Are you around, Jonas? Yeah, if you if you personally want to connect, um, best way is probably to find me on, on LinkedIn. I'm sure in the show notes you can share my name that uh, people can actually understand <laughs> how, how it's spelled. You can find me there. Um, if you want to find more or learn more about uh, Weird New Farmers, you can visit our website. Um, uh, that's uh, new-farmers.com. Um, or you can find us on TikTok as well as on Instagram. The handle, we are the new farmers. Amazing. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. It's always really great to check in. And um, I feel like we could talk about, uh, you know, micronutrients and carbon sequestration and kelp and space travel all day. 
Um, so we may have to have you back on. If you're doing anything fun, let us know. I um, mean, fields can come out. And yeah, until then, we'll we'll have to get together and, and cook or not cook with uh, composite foods using some algae. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and also, Jonas, it's, it's just been such a pleasure to see that, you know, starting as um, a student and kind of experimenting into making this a whole company, which has been actually really amazing to see. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me here on this podcast. It was a lot of fun. I know we could talk probably for another hour and I could like geek out on all the little things about algae. Um, so uh, always happy to chat. Great. Well, uh, thanks a lot. And um, thanks to everyone who listens to Fields and thanks to Heritage Radio Network for making the best food uh, podcast and radio um, in the world, or at least at least in New York. Uh, so uh, thanks a lot. We'll catch you next time. This is Fields. Um, and uh, yeah, happy growing, happy harvesting. Fields is powered by Riverside. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.